Well, let's pray together and ask for God's help as we try to understand those passages and also to understand this next line in the Lord's Prayer together, Your Kingdom Come. Let's pray. Father God, we have just heard your word and we know that it's not the word of men but it is the word of heaven, the word of the King of heaven. And so Father, as your servants, as citizens of that kingdom, uh, help us to receive it with humility. Help us to receive it obediently, uh, ready to follow you, the King of heaven. Amen. Well, we continue uh, this exploration, this series on on prayer and learning how to pray from the lips of Jesus. Uh, When asked uh, to teach his disciples to pray, he he uttered this famous prayer that we are working our way through and we come to the next line of it today, your kingdom come. But just just as we begin, let me uh, throw a couple of prayer options uh, past you, some uh, possible prayers that you could pray first thing in the morning. The first goes like this. Repeat out loud this positive prayer of affirmation. I'm going to be happy today. Though the skies are cloudy and grey, no matter what comes my way, I'm going to be happy today. Well, if that one's not going to work for you, try this one. Three times every morning. I believe, I believe, I believe. I mean, this is the kind of prayer that really flushes the negative thoughts out of the brain and gets you off uh, to a good start and then repeat this. I can, I can, I can. Inspiring prayers. Prayers suggested by uh, two pastors of huge uh, Christian congregations, two huge churches. I can, I can, I can. Do what? (laughs) I believe, I believe, I believe in what? Well, judging from the common theme in both prayers, I, it's hard to get past the suspicion that the author is advising people to believe in themselves. But as we've seen already in this series, that's not prayer, is it? Not even faith. And yet this idea of self-belief, this can-do attitude, this I-believe attitude, self-belief, is the hallmark of healthy human living in the 21st century, isn't it? It's a sign that you've got your act together. The great human ethos is self-belief. To be a a self-made man or woman who can do it. To be uh, self-sufficient or or even to a a small extent self-promoting, to put yourself forward. I mean, who else is going to do it? I believe, I believe, I believe. But the Bible says there is, in fact, no health in such a perspective. It's a worldview, a way of approaching life riddled with disease, not health. And at its heart is the complete antithesis of this prayer that we are learning together from Jesus. Instead of hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, now it is hallowed be my name. Honour to my name, respect to my name, value to my name. And to our God, our creator, such a prayer, the prayer of our world is hideous. And only in its most blatant forms do we get a glimpse of just how ugly it really is, this self-belief, this self-promotion. A blatant form, let me give you an example. Her name is Mariah Carey. 
I'm not sure if you've, uh, you've come across Mariah Carey. You may love her music. If so, uh, good for you. Enjoy. But uh, Mariah Carey, I think, is the ultimate example of this self-belief, self-promotion writ large. Whether it be uh, when she came, across, uh, came to a uh, London hotel at two in the morning demanding while she did laps around uh, the block that they roll out a red carpet and put flanks of candles either side in the entrance uh, for her grand arrival. Or my personal favourite of Mariah, uh, again in London, for her 35th birthday, she struck upon the idea that what she needed for her birthday was a life-size £5,000 cake modelled on herself. And so she ordered this six-foot-tall sponge creation filled with praline buttercream uh, to be made for her exclusive birthday party. And so this black golden cream treat uh, was put under a, uh, a curtain and at the critical moment in the party she unveiled the cake, six foot of Mariah Carey to be worshipped and then I assume ate. <laughs> Hallowed be my name, my kingdom come. Now we're naive as Christians if we think we're immune to this ethos that so permeates our world. The mantra of our world is indeed prayerful. But rather than bowing the knee before our Father in heaven, we as self-made men and and self-made women bow the knee before our Creator, ourselves. That is the human disease at its heart. And the symptoms are are many and often banal. I mean, not many of us are ordering life-size cakes of ourselves so that we can worship them. But we still work pretty hard at building our own kingdom, don't we? My kingdom come. Whether it be our obsession with something as simple as DIY, you go to B&Q any weekend and it's full of people building their kingdom, myself included. I walk down the aisles and I keep seeing things, oh, I need that, of course I need that. Or even our obsession with property. Where we were before here in, in Kellyville, it was a, a part of Sydney that was just filled with new homes. It was called New Homesville. People bought a block of land and then they put the biggest house they possibly could on this block. And uh, one of the fascinating things about all the houses that were built, I think they just sort of copied each other in this, but they all had these strange balconies at the front of the house uh, with a little sort of area to sort of stand and it didn't seem to have much of a purpose. But then... Slowly what what became obvious is what these balconies were for is at the end of the day, after a day's hard work, you uh, went back to your empire, your kingdom, this house, and you got out on your balcony and you surveyed your empire and looked around at what your hands had built. You see it in the credit crunch at the moment as houses, again in Kellyville I've seen houses that were worth 800,000 Australian dollars now worth 400,000. Your kingdom halved in an instant or our obsession with career progression or or education or whatever it might be, my kingdom come. And it is naive to think we'd be immune. And the way we see we're not is our prayers, the range of concerns of the things that we pray for, the, the detail of it, the types of answers we expect from our prayers. It's all too easy for our prayer life to become an implicit my kingdom come. As Paul said a couple of weeks ago, we end up praying things an unbeliever would be quite happy, quite comfortable praying. I don't know about you, but the the two weeks of this series so far, my prayer life has been shaken. 
as I look over the, the things I've prayed for recently and even ask people to pray for me, so often they're anemic, self-obsessed prayers, my kingdom come type prayers. But this prayer that Jesus is teaching us is a call to refix our eyes, our hearts, to remember something of far greater value than my kingdom, to remember the gospel and not be satisfied with a vision of anything less. You see, what the gospel has done for us as Christians is it's shown us this thing that is infinitely more valuable, more worthy than my self-obsession. You see, the call of the gospel is to opt out of building my kingdom for another kingdom altogether. And there's no better articulation of this than a simple parable Jesus tells in, in Matthew 13, it's verse 44. Matthew 13, verse 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. That's the gospel. When Jesus the King comes into this world, when the one one by whom and for whom all things were created comes to this world and offers his life to bring me back in relationship with his Father, when he pays the the debt of my sin, the, the debt I owe, only I owe and yet only he can pay so that the barrier between his love and me is destroyed forever. When I see that, when I see what he has used his kingly power and goodness to do for me, well, then everything changes, doesn't it? All of a sudden, I have something worth living for. The king, Jesus. He becomes to me a treasure beyond all value. So much so that like the man in the field, I'd be willing to sell everything to ditch my little kingdom for his He becomes a treasure in whom I find complete satisfaction, needing nothing more. Now we live in a world that operates under a permanent dissatisfaction, doesn't it? That's the way it works. Always room for more. Tim Keller, a US pastor, calls it our black hole of satisfaction, our infinite need, that no matter how successful we become relationally, work-wise, money-wise, health-wise, we're not satisfied. And before Jesus comes to us in his gospel, we, like our world, are just like that. Busy bringing honour to our name, busy building our kingdom because we can't see how incredibly valuable he really is. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 captures it for us perfectly. It says of this, it says, The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, if you're not a believer uh, here this morning in this service, let me say that's what you can't see. You can't see Jesus as magnificent, so glorious that he puts all the power, all the kingdoms, all the applause, all the toys, all of it in his shadow. What the gospel does for us is that it rips up the blinds And it shows us this this name that we're building for ourselves, this kingdom that we're building for ourselves is in fact just a mound compared to him. That's what it means to be born again. 
life begins again for us with a whole new way of viewing the world, one filled with Jesus and his glory and his goodness, filled with what Corinthians calls the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so we become, as C.S. Lewis puts it, those whose fuel, the fuel of our spirits, is he alone. The food of our spirits is him. We feed on him. There is no other. A whole new world view. And what we are learning here in the Lord's Prayer as Jesus teaches us to pray is not only do we have a new way of viewing the world, but we have a new vocabulary. Abba, Father, may you get the glory. And so as Jesus continues to teach us the Lord's Prayer here, this this new vocabulary that, that is the Christian vocabulary, He now explains how it is that we bring honour to his name, how we hallow God's name. And it's simple really. It's the same way we go about hallowing our name. We now pray, your kingdom come. And what I want to do for a few moments this morning is to explain just how big a prayer those three words are and what a huge difference they can make in our lives. Essentially, a Christian who prays your kingdom come is praying when it comes to God, God, please win. We want your victory. That's our passion. God wins. Now, I don't know about you, but there's lots of things I'm passionate about when it comes to victory and most of them are to do with sport. It's an Australian birthright that you have to be passionate about virtually every sport ever invented. But I remember, uh, I'm, I'm not alone and it's an, an English thing too because when I came across here in 2006 before starting to, to, to meet with some people, I was here only for about a week and I think I went into about 30 or 40 homes uh, in that week. And over the process of that, every single home seemed to have a copy of Ashes 2005, the greatest Ashes series ever. The first English victory, I think, uh, in a millennia. And so everybody, uh, everybody had got a copy and were very keen for me to see their copy and perhaps even sit down with them and watch it with them. That's what this prayer is about, having that sort of excitement for God's victory. I remember being uh, in Australia in 2005, seeing some of these matches and they're on a knife edge and passionately desperate that Australia somehow managed to sneak a victory. Well, that's what we're praying in this prayer. God, please win. And you know what? In praying that at last, we're praying for something that really matters and really makes a difference. The victory of God. The victory that will see his son come as king of kings and lord of lords. Come to punish all who have rejected his grace. Come to banish all ungodliness and unbelief and yet to gather all those who have come to him in faith from all the nations, bringing justice and righteousness and peace and joy to this earth forever. Now that's a victory worth praying for, isn't it? And you know what? It's not like an English ashes victory at all. It's a sure bet. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's going to happen. Paul calls it our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour. Blows out of the victory, any, uh, out of the water any sporting victory, doesn't it? And to be honest, it blows out of the water most of the little victories that we pray so often in our prayer life. 
the little details of our lives. Now don't uh, mishear me at this point. In praying this prayer, your kingdom come, it's not saying that God is not concerned with the details of our lives. He cares completely about those things. He cares about how your marriage is going. He cares about the problems you're having at work at the moment. He cares about a child adjusting to nursery or school and the difficulties that that brings. He cares about you struggling to care for a loved one or even just the difficulty in selling your house. He cares. But what this prayer is teaching us is how much greater is your God than those things? When Jesus is teaching us this this line of the prayer, he is saying that there is a cause, there is a vision a thousand times greater than your life and my life. He is saying, as he does in Matthew 6, look, if you really care about those things, those things that fill your heart and mind, that fill your prayer life, then you need to catch a glimpse of something far bigger. I mean, you may be here today and you're thinking you're dealing with things plenty big enough as it is and you don't need some grand thing to be praying, some, some idea of being a knight in a kingdom looking for some great victory. You, you know, I just want to be healthy again. I just want to save my marriage. I just want a companion. I'm not looking for some big, bold victory. I, I just want my kids to behave. Well, me too. And they are good things to pray. Keep praying them. Amen to that. But if you want those to see those things in the right perspective, if you want to be praying the right sort of prayers about those things, well, we're going to have to pray a lot bigger and yet far more simply than we are. Simple, that is, in focus. Your kingdom come. Now, let me give you three big things you're praying when you pray that prayer, when it becomes the focus of your prayer life. The first is simple. When you pray your kingdom come, you're praying a confession, an acknowledgement prayer. You're saying, yes, you are king, Jesus, and your kingdom is what I need and what our world needs more than anything else. It's a prayer by which we fall into line with Jesus' command in Mark 1 when he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. We're saying, okay, your kingdom come. It's to acknowledge our our God as creator king who, who by his very word out of nothing brought this world and the sphere of all the kingdoms in this world into existence. Your kingdom come. It's to acknowledge before him that every creature under heaven owes him complete allegiance. And yet it is that element from the basement of time that our world has failed to acknowledge, isn't it? But to pray this prayer is to know that despite that rejection of his rule, despite the terrible consequences of humans asserting self-rule, God is still on his throne and he has again and again in history brought his kingdom to bear on this world and finally and decisively and ultimately through his chosen king, his son. The moment Jesus' body was broken on the tree was the moment God's kingdom broke into this world forever. It has come with righteousness and joy and peace. 
And so if you pray your kingdom come, that's the first thing you're doing. You're confessing all those things. You're saying Jesus is king. But secondly, it's a prayer for the future, isn't it? It's a prayer for God's ultimate victory. It looks to the end of things and it says, bring it now. It looks to Jesus coming again when all will submit to his kingly rule. It it looks to the, the moment that Revelation 11 speaks of when it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the son he loves and he will reign forever. When everything, absolutely everything, art, commerce, sport, all the glory of the nations, everything will be devoted to him. And what we're doing by praying your kingdom come is we're praying God take action where we can't. Bring your kingdom. Bring this righteousness, this joy, this peace, this justice, faithfulness, healing, wholeness, rest. Bring it all. And we pray this because when we are seeing things clearly in our world, we know that this is the only hope, the only answer to crime or to war or tyranny. I don't know whether you saw it this week, but there was uh, Robert Mugabe uh, weeks after the election in Zimbabwe. We've prayed about it this morning. And there he is giving a speech as if the election hasn't even happened, as if it's business as usual and he can continue to trample over his people. Don't you look at that and wish justice came? Your kingdom come. If you want the end to the issues we have with our environment, the issues with sickness or arrogance or abuse, you name it, your kingdom come. And that's before we get to our own experiences, our our own losses, our own regrets, our faltering health. This is the prayer that says in the face of all of those things, come Lord Jesus, come and fix it, come now. And so it is essentially a prayer for the future, a prayer for God to do what he says he will do in Hebrews, wrap this world up like a coat and start again. And yet is there any sense in which even now, before that end, that we can pray God's kingdom break in now? Well, yes, in a very important sense. God is even now establishing his kingdom here on earth. And how is he doing that? Well, quite simply and yet wonderfully. When his disciples in Acts 1 ask the risen Jesus, uh, how are you going to bring this kingdom about? How are you going to restore the kingdom? His answer is simple. He says, well, this is how I'm going to do it. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring my gospel to bear on this world, the news of Jesus the King. And so if you're going to pray your kingdom come, ultimately what you are praying for here and now is you are praying God's gospel succeeds because that's how he's establishing his kingdom. He's not conquering people through the sword. He is conquering hearts one after another, after another, after another through his gospel. And he's doing it over time, isn't he? Gradually. You can hardly see it. It's like the mustard seed of of Matthew 13. And yet he's doing it. Whether it be a conversation around a, a Christianity explored table, whether it be just a chat with a friend over coffee, a chat at work, whatever it might be, that is how God's kingdom 
is coming in this earth. Peter tells us that the Lord is patient. He doesn't want any to perish. And so every minute that this world remains as it is, there's another minute that another person can repent, come under the king's rule and receive the blessings of that kingdom when he comes again. And so we are to pray this prayer, passionate that God's gospel succeed in the world. But even more than that, what we are also praying is that we are praying for ourselves as a church. When we pray your kingdom come, when we pray for the success of the gospel, we are praying that that gospel succeed here amongst us. That more and more God's people reflect their king. And here you see that this prayer that seems all future, all out there in the distance, the end of time, affects the here and now for us. When you pray your kingdom come, you're saying, Lord, as the next line in this prayer will say, I bend my will to yours. Reshape my will around yours. You're praying a a prayer of commitment. As Luke 9 says, no one who puts his hand to the plough and then looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. We're, We're praying, I'm in, count me in, Lord. Count me in for your kingdom. We're praying that we as a church be passionately pursuing that kingdom to seek first the kingdom as Jesus says in Matthew 6. And finally, for us as a church, it is a prayer of humility and dependence, isn't it? As Jesus says in in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're praying it because we have nothing to offer that kingdom. Nothing at all. And yet we say, come Lord Jesus. And so it really does involve us now, here and now. It's not an armchair prayer. It's not, come Lord, do your stuff. You cannot pray this prayer and just put it off to the future. It's a prayer asking God to radically reshape this community because he knows that's the only thing that will change things in this world as this community more and more reflects its king as this community more and more proclaims the king, both locally and at the ends of the earth. So it's a big prayer, isn't it? Three words. And to be honest, in our world, this idea of God's kingdom coming seems a bit fanciful. This talk of a glorious kingdom of our world, as broken as it is, being totally restored, fixed up completely of the gospel succeeding in the world. I mean, I think of just my brother and my sister, let alone the ends of the earth, and I can't see how God's kingdom is going to come there. Or of even God transforming us so much that we would really live like kingdom citizens. Seems a vain hope. I was thinking about that during the week and I remembered going to an AFL Aussie Rules football game with my grandfather, a few years ago. Now, uh, he uh, managed to convince me as a young child to support a team called the Western Bulldogs. Now, they are a completely hopeless team. Terrible. Uh, They've won one grand final and that was in 1954, so I wasn't round to see it. But he tells me it was a great victory and he's been living off it ever since. And there we were a few years ago and it was our big moment, our chance to get another victory. We're in the game before the grand final. And about halfway through the game, looks like we're a chance. And then as the game goes on and on, we get further and further behind until there's about 10 minutes left and we're, we're 50 points behind. An insurmountable lead, really, uh, in an AFL game. And yet, So I've given up. I'm reading the newspaper, waiting for the final siren. 
And yet there's my grandpa behind me for the last 10 minutes just yelling at the top of his voice, go the bulldogs. Pathetic, really. And to be honest, you walk into this world and pray your kingdom come and you look like my pa at the football. Easy to feel that way. This kingdom is just a mustard seed. You can hardly see it. So very tiny. And yet Jesus says it will grow into a massive tree. Or as Daniel 2 puts it, this tiny rock will grow into a mountain and will shatter all kingdoms before it. His kingdom has come. It is coming. It will come. And we need to pray it in. Let me leave you with these uh, verses from Revelation 8 that uh, we had read out for us earlier. It's worth turning to that Revelation chapter 8. It paints an amazing picture for us, a picture of the throne room of heaven and God on that throne and the prayers of Christians reaching God. And do you see what happens in verse 1 of Revelation 8 when the prayers reach heaven? Silence. Complete silence as our prayers are heard. Prayers that please him. Prayers like your kingdom come. And do you see what happens? The kingdom comes. And so we cry, your kingdom come. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is a great and good and merciful and mighty king. We thank you that he has given us a whole new way of viewing this world and now a whole new way of speaking to you. Father, help us to be those who long for your kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.